0: The great moderation of recent decades, that period of stable growth, and low inflation is over. That was the conclusion during the BlackRock Investment Institute's first in-person outlook forum in two and a half years. Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing the economy and finance. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. The war in Ukraine has exacerbated high inflation. Commodity prices are sharply higher. Central banks face a stark trade-off between crushing growth with sharply higher rates or living with inflation. We have entered a new regime driven by higher macro and market volatility, and braving this new world requires a fundamental revamp of portfolio positioning. So what should investors be concerned about, and are there any opportunities to be had during this period of volatility? Volatility. Today I'm pleased to welcome Jean Boban, Head of the BlackRock Investment Institute, Vivek Paul, Head of Portfolio Research for the BlackRock Investment Institute, and Wei Li, Global Chief Investment Strategist for BlackRock. Together, we'll be breaking down BlackRock's mid-year outlook and uncovering the top three investment themes guiding investors in 2022. Welcome Jean, Vivek, and Wei. Hello.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: So, Jean, uh, let's turn to you first. The outlook seems pretty tough. Is it really as bad as it looks?
2: Well, I'm sorry to start by saying, yes, it's probably as bad as it looks, but it's better to acknowledge things as they are. We've seen a historic decline this year in both bond and equity, things we haven't seen in decades, really. And to answer the question straight, we don't see things or the condition for this to reverse at this moment. And in fact, we see reasons for that to be sustained or this environment to persist. So, People are talking about recession and inflation, of course. These are major concerns currently in the markets and in the narrative we're hearing. But I think it's important to make the point that even if recession concerns were to pass uh, temporarily or if we avoid a recession, it's something more profound that is happening that is driving markets and will continue to drive markets. So it's broader than recessions, it's broader than inflation. In fact, we believe that over the last couple of years, what we've observed and what we are in now is the end of the Great Moderation. The Great Moderation was a period that lasts about 40 years where we ultimately have been pretty lucky to face pretty steady growth environment, mostly because of demand exuberance or collapse in sentiment by consumers and investors investors. These were really the driver of this environment, demand driven. It was an environment that turned out to be a lot easier to stabilize for policymakers. It was an environment where you know what to do. You can raise rates to cool off the economy. You can lower rates to stimulate the economy. And you can do that without having to worry too much about inflation. So we've seen a very stable environment in terms of growth and inflation. And we think this is over. This environment has changed. And the reason it has changed is that we're facing shocks, dynamics, drivers that are not about demand, but are really about constraint to the supply side of the economy, constrained to the ability to produce. That's what generates the inflation pressure, but that's also what generates the weak growth. And this environment, as a result, is very different. Impossible to stabilize efficiently, both from the inflation and the growth side. It has an intrinsic trade-off that is a lot starker than what we've seen over the last 40 years. Central banks will not be able to both stabilize growth and inflation, and they'll have to choose. But no matter what happens, we're going to end up with a worse combination of both inflation and growth. And that's why, as a result, the outlook is more problematic than it has been. That's why we're adopting a much more cautious stance at this juncture.
0: Understood. Thank you. Uh, Wei, coming over to you and thinking about the outlook, what should people be watching as we head into the second half of the year?
1: Absolutely. So if you think about this new regime that Jean just spoke to, which is a regime characterized by higher macro volatility, and subsequently as a result of that, higher market volatility has direct investment implications. So thinking about potentially higher risk premium for equities and for bonds, being an environment where past ways of investing, would not work as well in this new regime. And also the typical 60-40 portfolios not working as well. So looking at 2022 being the worst year on record for a 60-40 portfolio. And also in this environment, one would expect risk models calibrated to history not working as well. And in this environment, we believe that investing will have to be more dynamic, will have to be more granular. Potentially at a sector level, or potentially even below that, and then being thoughtful about some of the behavioral biases, because we're talking about regime change. So the portfolio changes in response to regime change will have to be more dynamic, potentially also of a bigger magnitude. So as we make big portfolio shifts, being aware of some of the behavior biases, being aware of inertial bias, for example, is important. Now, specifically, as we look at the second half of this year, we talked about the need to be more dynamic, um, Looking back, we have been quite dynamic to the extent that we have been reducing risk at various points so far this year. And at this juncture, as we look ahead to the second half of the year, we reduce portfolio level risk taking again um, equity correction so far this year reflect rate repricing pricing but not necessarily a significant slowdown in earnings growth which we're expecting so there is potentially further catalyst for equities to react to whereas if you look at credits already prices in a very slow growth environment and they're starting to offer attractive yield now for the first time in over a decade right? so there are some relative opportunities to be investigated and embraced as we further reduce portfolio level risks taking in light of this new vision. In characterization that
0: Jean just spoke to. And John, back to you for a moment. The topic that's on everyone's mind right now is inflation and the fact that central banks are having to respond by raising interest rates. So just curious, are there any constraints that central banks have to think about as they're raising rates? And also the net zero transition, what impact does that have on inflation?
2: I mentioned at the outset that we think this is a regime change. The end of the Great Moderation is going to be a more volatile macro environment. Inflation is one manifestation of it. That's the most concrete manifestation that we're observing now. And it's in everybody's mind, as you say. But the more fundamental challenge that we're facing is this very sharp trade-off now between trying to stabilize this inflation, but the cost that this' is going to have to imply in terms of reducing growth if we were to try to really stabilize inflation. One implication of the fact that the great moderation is over is that we don't think a soft landing is in the cards. We don't think a soft landing is possible, where we would stabilize gently inflation back to 2%, while we would maintain some stable growth environment. That's not feasible, given the sharp trade-off that I've been spilling out. That means that central banks, and the Fed in particular, will need to choose. They will need to choose how quickly they want to bring inflation back to 2%, and how much they're willing to pay the price for it or have us all pay the price for it. And the problem is right now, not only the Fed, but central banks are not really, in our view, acknowledging that reality. We're hearing from central banks a lot more of a whatever it takes approach. We'll do whatever it takes to bring inflation to 2%, but that doesn't line up with the reality that is a lot more complex. But for now, that's the story they're running with. And in fact, I think they've pretty significantly boxed themselves into responding and wanting to appear as if they're dealing with this inflation as aggressively as they can. So for now, that means that we expect them to respond aggressively to the inflation in phase one. I'm going to break that into phases, but in the first phase, which you can think of it as until the end of this year, we expect them to respond aggressively to any inflation news that surprise on the upside. We think they're going to bring in the U.S. the policy rate above neutral, so bringing the interest rate in restrictive territory. But as they do that, we expect the damage to become more concrete and real. So in our view now, we're going to see stalling growth. That will have the effect of stalling the restart that we've tried to engineer over the last couple of years. And as this becomes clear, we expect then some kind of a pivot from central banks that will ease off a bit on, on the hiking uh, pressure. And at the end of the day, sometime in 2023, we're going to see central bank eventually accepting to live with some inflation. So I don't think we're going to see inflation going back to 2%. We're going to be maybe more in a world where inflation is more around 3% ultimately. So living with some inflation to avoid the big damage that otherwise this environment will have to imply in terms of growth. So two phases first. This is about pretending we're doing whatever it takes for inflation. We're going to go too far for some time. We're going to see the damage. But sometime in 2023, we're going to see some pivot. And ultimately, we're going to end up living with some more inflation. One reason why the pivot is going to have to happen in 2023 beyond the damage that it will be real is also that there are pretty significant constraints that are constraining the ability to raise rates. So the high leverage in the system globally, both in terms of public debt, but also in the terms of the private sector, will constrain the ability to raise rates or will mean that the interest increase will have magnified in terms of restraining activity. So that's going to play a role. And then, as you say, the net zero transition is one example of a phenomenon that's going to raise production costs and not only this year, but in a sustained way over the years to come. And will continue to present this sharp trade-off and that an ongoing constraint and a reason, again, why we think eventually we're going to see a pivot and ultimately we'll end up living with some more inflation not out-of-control inflation, but inflation above targets uh, for the years to come.
0: Vivek, I'd like to bring you into the conversation and continue along this theme of inflation being higher, uh, the fact that we are transitioning towards a more decarbonized economy. Uh, as John just mentioned, that brings with it higher production costs. So is that transition actually going to occur? And if so, how can investors navigate this transition and what should they be taking into consideration?
3: So I guess the first thing to say would be, it'd be very tempting in a year like this one, with all the extreme market movements we've heard about from Jean and Wei, to maybe think that this doesn't matter anymore, that markets have moved on, other things are more important. And that's way too simplistic and masks a really important point. The first point is, in periods of material market duration, all the things we talked about just there, high inflation, big shifts in monetary policy, we should expect that those things dominate markets in the near term. We should. But that does not mean the net zero transition no longer matters. And if anything, I think the events of the last six months actually redouble the focus that some regions will have in incentivizing the creation of more renewable energy sources, incentivizing that overall transition. And for an investor building a portfolio, this is all about being able to capture opportunities and be resilient to the risks. In that regard, it's no different from any other thing that's affecting investment markets. And there is an investment case to be made for assets linked to the transition we believe and a strong one for a couple of reasons. The first point would be that even though current policy isn't necessarily sufficient in and of itself to achieve net zero by 2050, we think that the transition could accelerate as technology develops, greater evidence of societal preferences shifting occurs, and in general, the human and economic cost of climate change becomes clearer. And as that does, we think the investment opportunities will come even clearer. And secondly, why that's really important from capturing the opportunities is markets haven't fully priced that in. We published some research back in 2020 suggesting that markets would, over time, increasingly value the assets of companies which are better prepared for the transition relative to those that aren't. We find that some of that repricing has already occurred, but importantly, much of it is yet to come. And the recent work that we've done actually suggests, if anything, our initial estimate of the total repricing that would occur is perhaps a bit too conservative. I think that's the first point to make there, that this is very much a live story, but it's a strategic horizon story. I think another really important thing when investors think about how to best navigate the transition and make the most in terms of their asset allocation, is that there are different ways of accessing this dynamic. This isn't just about investing in the inverted already green companies, but it's also investing in those companies that are well chosen that might well be currently carbon intensive, but have a credible transition plan or those that supply the materials, the equipment, the services that are needed for the transition. The commodities are a prime example and something that we've debated a lot in our team. The demand for some of those transition critical minerals, for instance, is expected to grow materially and over time. But all told, we shouldn't expect that transition sensitive assets will relentlessly outperform week in, week out, month on month. There will be times that other dynamics dominate, but positioning for the transition is completely central to how we build strategic horizon portfolios. We think there's increasing evidence that that repricing dynamic is occurring, and there are positive returns to be had in this period where markets have yet to fully price in those dynamics.
0: Wei, I'd like to talk a bit more about emerging markets. China's the largest of the emerging markets, and it's been one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But it's also had a growth slowdown due to COVID. So. What has been the impact on the broader emerging market community from this slowdown, and how should investors be thinking about investing in emerging markets going forward?
1: That's a great question in terms of the impact on emerging markets, but also the evolution of emerging markets. So I will go at it from a broader perspective. So when we think about emerging market investing, it's come a long way. Uh, hasn't it? So if you think about the composition of emerging market indices, like back in the days was very heavy on industrials, for example. But now if you look at the breakdown of MSCI, emerging market benchmarks is very heavily concentrated in tech and financials. So emerging market has evolved and come a long way. And not all emerging markets are equal. So you talked about China and China does stand on its own. But so far, if you look at the development, even this year, the differences between various parts of the emerging market uh, regions and countries have been growing as well. Energy and commodity importers versus exporters. So the first point I want to make is that when we say emerging markets, what we mean by that, that needs to evolve to reflect the fact that the emerging market has come a long way and not all emerging markets are created equal. And the second thing I would say about emerging markets investing is really around this idea that in the past we talk about emerging market investing, it's very much around buying into the growth story, buying into the cheap asset story. That needs to evolve at this juncture in our view. So this new market regime also suggests to us that we should really focus on economies and markets that can generate income in an environment that is also characterized by globalization rewired. So instead of the old play of growth and capital appreciation, think of boring emerging market as good at this juncture of uh, development. And the last thing I would say in the context of what's been happening so far this year, and also one of our tactical convictions, is our view on emerging market debt, specifically our view on emerging market local currency debt. So a lot of emerging market central banks, they hiked early this time around, and some of their interest rate levels are well above the pre COVID levels. So, a lot of rate hikes have happened, and a lot are already in the price, and that supports a more favorable view on local emerging market debt at
0: this juncture. Vivek, for investors who have longer term objectives out for the next five or 10 years, how did the themes that we've discussed today around bracing for volatility, living with inflation, the net zero transition, how should that influence how they're building portfolios?
3: Okay, so I want to pick up on something that Jean said a little bit earlier around multiple phases of the environment that we're in in terms of the policy reaction function and more broadly how policymakers deal with this environment. And if you think about The coming year, I think we heard John talking about this idea, the central banks are dealing with the politics of inflation. And that accentuates for us the risk of a near-term downturn. You couple that with the idea of very real challenges in Europe facing the energy crisis, et cetera. This is not the time to be taking material near-term risk on stance. That's why we've made the portfolio allocation changes that way has been talking about. But that isn't where we think we're going to settle. And in that environment of that trade-off that is more awkward and is going to persist, we think ultimately policymakers are going to end up settling with more inflation, as we've heard my colleagues say before. And what that means is that ultimately trying to limit to some degree and more than they have in the coming period, the output volatility that we might see all else equal what that means is the outlook for risk assets equities etc is a little bit more positive when you take that longer term view one example of this is to think about the path of interest rates and building on the comments from earlier in the near term we think that central banks are likely to go into restrictive territory dealing with that politics of inflation but ultimately they will bring back rates to levels that in the long run look not particularly high relative to the inflation that we anticipate seeing that means that's an environment where we have reasonable nominal growth, low nominal interest rates, That should in all as equal be an environment that's relatively benign for equity, particularly given some of the drivers I spoke about earlier about opportunities coming around, From the transition towards net zero, that is a benefit for developed markets in particular. So portfolios that we position for over a multi-year horizon reflect a lot of the dynamics that we've talked about today more broadly. This idea of living with inflation and the allocations we have, a sizable overweight allocation for us is to inflation-linked bonds. We see inflation settling at higher levels. That's something that we position for over the long term. You couple that with the idea of an underweight to nominal government bonds because we continue to expect yields to rise. We're not yet at the levels that are destination for us. And that transition to net zero that we've talked about is embedded in everything that we do when we're building our long-term portfolios, but typically and explicitly around this idea of a preference for developed market equities and perhaps a move away from certain aspects of the sub-investment grade universe, such as high yield. The final thing I'd say when we're thinking a little bit longer term and building portfolios is typically when we're thinking about strategic horizon asset allocation, It's something that typically people do, they set it, and the tactical allocations are the ones that move around more materially. But in environments which are more volatile, you can see big market moves in a short space of time. And there are periods where effectively you'd want to shift your strategic horizon portfolio as well because of the size of some of those moves. And in the portfolios that we've built over the last couple of years, they look very different to where they did before the COVID crisis started because of this dynamic. This is a different regime as we've heard about and portfolios might need to shift materially if the market generation's are big.
0: Vivek, Way, way, uh, thank you so much for all your insights. It's been very enlightening to hear your mid-year outlook. There's a lot for investors to consider right now. Thank you for joining me on The Bid. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bid. On our next episode, A Stock Picker's Guide to Inflation, we'll be joined by Tony Despirido, BlackRock CIO of U.S. Fundamental Equities, for a look at how to navigate these tumultuous market conditions. Make sure you subscribe to The Bid wherever you get your podcasts. This
4: information is for informational purposes only and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. The information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K. and non-European economic area, E.E.A., countries, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management, U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44-020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 02020394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. Please refer to the Financial Conduct Authority website for a list of authorized activities conducted by BlackRock. In the European Economic Area, EEA, this is issued by BlackRock Netherlands BB, is authorized and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. Registered Office, Amstelplein 1-1096-HA, Amsterdam, Telephone 020-549-5200, Telephone 3120-549-5200. Trade register number 17068311. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. For investors in Switzerland, this is marketing material. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, company registration number 200010143N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited ABN 13006-165-975 AFSL 230523, bimal The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. Before making any investment decision, you should assess whether the material is appropriate for you and obtain financial advice tailored to you having regard to your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, and circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund, nor shall any shares be offered or sold to anyone in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase, or sale would be unlawful under the securities law of that jurisdiction. If any funds are mentioned or inferred to in this material, it is possible that some or all of the funds may not have been registered with the securities regulator of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Peru, Uruguay, or any other securities regulator in any Latin American country, and thus may not be publicly offered within any such country. The securities regulators of such countries have not confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the investment services guide available at www.blackrock.com forward slash MX. Copyright 2021 BlackRock Incorporated. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Incorporated. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.